The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we are in Acts chapter 20. And like I said, I, I had the privilege already this morning to meet several visitors today, some first-time visitors. And we are delighted that you are here just to kind of set the... And there are several people who are regulars, but you weren't here last week. We've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, we started at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, and we're just going to go all the way through. The way Luke wrote it down, as he was moved by the Spirit of God to recount for us how the church began and how Christ built his church, the foundations of the church for the first 30 years when the church started. And that's what the book of Acts covers, all the way from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, almost the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. So we are now in Acts chapter 20. We covered three ministry journeys of the Apostle Paul. We just recently covered Paul's longest missionary journey, which is third missionary journey, where he was away from his home church in Antioch of Syria for about three years and planted many churches in areas that were Gentile, Greek, in the Roman Empire, pagan, most of whom had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. So it was very exciting and a wonderful opportunity. Many adventures. God watched over Paul, and Paul was subjected to much persecution and resistance throughout. But God also blessed the ministry of Paul preaching the gospel. And he made disciples and friends along the way and um, planted several churches. He spent the longest time at the church at Ephesus, which was his last stop here in Acts 19 and 20, and that's where we're going to pick up. This is now about 58 A.D., somewhere around there. Uh, Paul has been saved for about 20 years. He's got about nine years left before he gives his life for Christ as a martyr, where he's literally killed, murdered. History would say beheaded by Nero, simply for being a witness for the Lord Jesus. So we're now in Acts chapter 20, end of the third missionary journey. Paul's heart is set on traveling about a 1,000 miles by sea to reach Jerusalem, where the church started, and they have great need in Jerusalem. They are a persecuted church. A famine went through there, um, and the, the Christians are being persecuted. They're mostly Jewish Christians. They're being persecuted by unbelieving Jews. And ironically, the Apostle Paul spearheaded that. Actually, when he was Saul and not saved, Saul spearheaded a wide-scale persecution to stamp out Christianity in Jerusalem in around 35 A.D. And he was highly successful. And the Jewish Christians have been highly ostracized throughout Jerusalem ever since. And so now God has saved Saul, turned him into Paul, and now is giving Paul an opportunity to go back to the very place where he instigated a wholesale persecution against the believers there to comfort them, to minister to them, to bring them finances a love offering collected from many churches where Paul has recently been, and to be with them. And so that's where Paul is headed. Uh, before he goes there, he wants to address the elders at the church of Ephesus where he, he just spent three years with these men, trained up these men, and now he's giving them parting words, exhortation, letting them know, I'm not going to be the pastor of this church anymore. I won't be one of the elders among you. You may never see me again. And you are entrusted by God to take care of, of the church of God, to shepherd these people. And so what we have in Acts chapter 20, 17 to, to the end of the chapter, verse 38, 
is Paul addressing the plurality of elders in the church of Ephesus. And that's where we are. And I've divided up into three main points here. Uh, and I titled it, The Ministry of Local Church Elders, 17 to 38. Last week, we looked at the model to follow. If you're an elder, shepherd, pastor, we don't have to guess as to what we're supposed to be doing. We don't have to be pioneers and make up and invent a job description as a pastor. It's already in the Bible. Explicit commands, and they are finite, a very specific modeling of how to be an elder or a pastor, and Paul is the prime example and model. And so we looked at last week at the model to follow with respect to a pastor or an elder and how they are to oversee a local church. And we saw that in the ministry of Paul, just the wonderful model that he was. And he was serving the Lord with humility. That kind of summarizes. He was a servant to the church. That's what a pastor is or a leader. Leaders in the church are, in, in the Christian world are different than the very antithesis of leaders in the world. Leaders in the church are different than leaders in the world. And that leaders in the church are first and foremost servants, foot washers. That's not true of a leader in the world. Jesus himself said that in the Gospels. And Paul was a perfect model of that. So we looked at the model to follow. That was the amazing ministry of the Apostle Paul, the selfless servant. And now we'll look at the last two points here of uh, how should elders and pastors and overseers conduct themselves in the local church. And that's points 2 and 3, verses 22 to 38. So let's go ahead and look at that. Um, I'm going to start verse, uh, reading at verse 17, and then we'll pick up with our second point, beginning at verse 22. But at verse 17, Paul addresses uh, the elders in the city of Miletus, about 20 miles away from Ephesus. It's kind of like an extended elders meeting, if you will. Also some elder training, pastors conference, if you will. And he addresses the plurality of elders from the city of Miletus. And he says in verse 18, uh, when they had all come to him, he said, You yourselves know men, elders, pastors from Ephesus, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, Asia Minor, that's where the city of Ephesus was, and uh, those churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are also in that area, probably started by the Apostle Paul under the influence of his ministry. When I was in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. So Paul poured his life into training and raising up leadership in the local church. And he was successful. Verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we talked about that last week. And so he just laid down an exemplary model of what it means to be a shepherd. Now let's look at verses 22 to 27. And that is, after the model, the message to preach. What is the message that we preach and teach as leaders in the church? There, there is question and debate about that today in America. I mean, books are being written about it and have been for decades about what our point of emphasis should be if you're a pastor. And many have suggested that, well, doing it the old way, old school way, that doesn't work anymore. Because uh, just preaching the same old thing that's been preached for almost 2,000 years, uh, we're in a new age. We're in a new day. People need new information. They, need, uh, they have shorter attention spans, by the way. And they can't think at the deep level because they're the entertainment age. And so not only do we have to change our method of how we communicate the message we're going from preaching to something else but also the content of the message because the old content not necessarily relevant for our technically 
technologically savvy age in which we are in the space age. And so people are proposing we need to even change the message. And Paul makes it clear, no, this is the message. It's a universal message. It's a transcendent message. It's a timeless message. It doesn't change. So we're going to look at some of the highlights of the actual message that Paul preaches and that we as a church should be preaching. Uh, before I do, just a reminder, we, we emphasized this last week because this is really important, and hopefully it clarifies uh, some things in our mind. Look at verse 17 where it said, elders. So Paul, who did Paul gather to himself? It was the elders. Uh, this is the New American Standard. I think most English Bibles say elders. Now, the Greek word we pointed out last week is presbuteros, plural, presbuteros, where we get presbyterian, or presbyter. And that, that just means elder. Someone who's older, uh, there's a level of maturity involved, whether it's character, sometimes age usually goes along with that. And that came out of the Greek culture, actually, that word. I mean, uh, that was a Hebrew, sorry, Old Testament concept, uh, the more mature ones, elder presbyter. So, I mean, literally, you could read in verse 17, Paul called to himself the Presbyterians of the church, or the presbyters of the church. And we say the elders. So, who are the elders? Well, they're the leaders of the church. They rule over the church. They... Uh, serve the church. But then down, uh, go to verse 28. We pointed this out. Verse 28. Be on guard, and he's still talking to the elders of the presbyters. Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock, the sheep, the local church, among which the Holy Spirit of God has made you overseers. So God has made the elders of the church the overseers of the church. So elder and overseer, those are synonymous terms. And the Greek word for overseer is Episcopus or episcopos, Episcopalian. So Paul said to the Presbyterians, and then later he calls them Episcopalians. Those were those words come from. In other words, an elder is the same thing as an overseer. A presbyter is the same thing as an episcopus. Also translated as bishop. So an elder is a bishop. I know it gets confusing, but they're all synonymous. Bishop. And then it says in the middle of verse 28, what do overseers or bishops or episcopus do? They shepherd. That's the verb. What does an elder do? He shepherds. That's what he does. An elder is who he is. Shepherding is what he does. So uh, that word for shepherd is a verb. When it's translated as a noun, it's, it's translated as pastor. So there it is. But it's usually translated as a verb. So my point is that elders... Bishops, overseers, pastors are all interchangeable and virtually synonymous terms. Yet the word for pastor usually is a verb shepherding. So we have six elders at our church, the leaders of the church that God has put in place, also with the leading of the people of this church. And our responsibility as elders is to oversee, or as overseers, we shepherd the flock. That's what we do. Um, the reason I point that out again is because this is, it took about a 150 years after this was laid down in the early church. We're in about the second or end of the second century. This got totally convoluted. And then humans decided to improve on God's leadership structure in the church and started misusing their, these terms, making up new terms of leadership, and just messed up everything. So that today you have all kinds of different leadership structures in all kinds of different churches that aren't consistent with what the Bible clearly says. And a couple of parallel parallel passages we won't go to that if you wanted to look at the same thing where the terms are interchangeable. First Peter 5, elders, presbyteros, are to 
shepherd. They are two pastors. So an elder is a pastor, an elder pastor. Uh, you can go to Titus 1. There's another one where qualifications for a bishop, overseer are laid out, and then it also calls them elder in that same passage. So an overseer is an elder, and they are to shepherd. Uh, so very important. This is God's leadership structure. We need to keep it intact. We can't improve upon it and change it, and we shouldn't. So with that, Paul's talking to the elders and the overseers and exhorting them as how best they are to shepherd or pastor the people. So let's go ahead and look at the message that we are to preach as pastors because it was modeled after Paul. So verse 22, let's go ahead and look at some of these things regarding uh, how Paul preached. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So Paul knew he was following the Spirit of God. He was led by the Spirit of God. Uh, he is constrained within his spirit. He is in tune with God. He's been in prayer. He's listened to the counsel of other godly people. Along the way, he's actually had prophets of God, local prophets of God, speak authoritatively to him with divine revelation, telling him, Paul, you must go to Jerusalem. And Paul, you will be persecuted when you get to Jerusalem. And so he understands that. That is the message he has consistently heard. He's already been chased out of Jerusalem as a Christian and almost lost his life there. And he knows it's highly risky to go there. But he's going to go anyway. They need the relief that he's going to bring. So basically he knows if I go to Jerusalem, I could very well die. But he's going to go anyway. That is tremendous courage. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Uh, although I know a few things, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies. That's one word. It comes from the, the verb to be a martyr, dia martyr. The Holy Spirit testified or communicated literally to Paul, letting him know that you're going to suffer in Jerusalem. So verse 23, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city that I have been going, and the Holy Spirit has been saying to his prophets that bonds and afflictions await me. And this is totally true. This was fulfilled. This is 58 A.D. For the next nine years, most of Paul's time and his ministry will be sent. He will be spent in prison or on trial. So there's a, tra a change and a transition in his ministry here. He writes the prison epistles. He ends up imprisoned at least twice, once for an ex extended period of time. So this is prophetic. Verse 24. But Paul wasn't afraid. Or maybe he had human fear, but at the same time, he was just going to entrust himself to God. That's why he's a model Christian. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. That, that is just profound, that verse, 24. In other words, I do not live for myself as a Christian. I live for Jesus. And I am committed to doing that. And that's what an exhortation for all of us. Those of us who are Christians, can we say that about ourselves? I don't live for myself, I live for Jesus. Probably most of us, I don't know, for me, would be like, I want to live for Jesus and not for myself. This week, I'm going to try to live for Jesus and not for myself. See how far you get. Maybe an hour and a half goes by, oops, I'm living for self. Or maybe three hours goes by and you think you're living for Jesus and someone who lives with you knows you well says, you're not living for Jesus, you're living for self. But this was Paul, this was the beat of his heart. I, I live for Christ. I was the worst of sinners. He saved me by His grace. I am all His. I will pour my life out on His behalf. I want to fulfill my ministry. And that's, that's really what he 
uh, is intending to do, and God honors his request. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course. What is this course? The ministry that Christ has called him to do. Not just as a Christian, but also as an apostle, as a founding apostle. As an apostle who ends up writing 13 epistles out of the 27 books in the New Testament. So Paul was absolutely key to the founding of the church and the mission to the world. And he knew that he could disqualify himself with compromise, with his own sin. He feared that. He probably feared his own sin getting in the way more than he feared dying for Christ. Amazing. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. I don't live for myself. I live for Jesus. And I want to finish the ministry and the course in this life that he has given me. And we know that at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, around 66 A.D., he says, I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. And I've discharged the mission that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me. Amazing. So he wants to finish his course. He wants to finish uh, the ministry which he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So here's one of the points I wanted to point out about the message. What is the message that Paul preached, that the apostles have preached, and that every pastor, elder, or church leader is supposed to be preaching for the last 2,000 years? And that's why this verse and this phrase is key. The ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. So I have a message that I am to preach. I didn't invent it. I didn't make it up. I didn't get it from human sources. It says, I received it from the Lord Jesus. That means direct revelation. And that's exactly how Paul got most of what he was preaching. The Lord Jesus Christ visited him personally and gave him supernatural divine revelation that did not come from a human origin. Biblical truth. That is the content of what a pastor and elder is supposed to preach. It's not man's message. It's not a feel-good message. We're not supposed to be tickling people's ears. It's what God has entrusted to us to preach, the full counsel of God, divine revelation, special revelation. Today for us, it is the Bible. Thank you to the Apostle Paul, the Apostles, and all of the prophets. So it's a ministry entrusted to us, given to us. We are not to be pioneers of Christian ministry and pioneers of biblical truth and making stuff up. Oh, here's a new... Pastor Cliff, I love my pastor because he's got new ideas and new concepts, things I've never heard before. Boy, that would be scary. If I am preaching things you've never heard before, then you should wave the red flag. That's not my job. I am to dispense the deposit of truth that has already been given, finalized 2,000 years ago. not here to make up anything. Now, this truth that has already been given, it applies to every area of life because it is sufficient. And there are new things that arise. So in the technological age, does 2,000-year-old truth from the New Testament still apply to us today 2,000 years later? Absolutely. In every detail. Why? Because it is the living and abiding Word of God. And the Spirit of God also helps apply it to our life. So this is the content in which he preaches. It's a ministry he received from the Lord Jesus. It is not of human origin. Uh, And then he goes on, verse 24, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Here it is. He's getting more specific about the content of the message that he is to preach. The emphasis being Jesus Christ and him risen. Jesus crucified and risen. That is the message. Uh, Just a couple of things there just to emphasize. Solemnly testifying. uh, This phrase, solemnly testifying to testify. That is a legal term in Paul's day. Martyr. A witness in a courtroom. Making the oath. 
Before Almighty God, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? In front of these witnesses, I do. This is a solemn vow. It's a solemn responsibility. That's why Paul uses this word, solemnly testifying, verse 21. Solemnly testifying, verse 23. Solemnly testifying, verse 24. Uh, testifying, verse 26. This is formally testifying on behalf of Almighty God. This is a legal term. It's in the courtroom of God's courtroom. Is God as judge. He's the one that a pastor, preacher, Bible teacher is accountable to first and foremost. That's why James chapter 3 says that if any of you decide to be a teacher of the Word, a preacher of the Bible, you have a higher level of accountability as a teacher before God because you are responsible for preaching His Word first and foremost. And that's what the, Paul was committed to. And then he gets very specific about what is the Christian message? Well, it was very different than the Jews of his day who were not saved, and that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who preached man-made religion, who preached legalism and brought guilt upon the people. Paul preached the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel. You could literally put good news. Paul preaches good news. That is distinctive of Christianity. That's our message. We are to preach the good news, the gospel, the good, and the good news is Jesus Christ. The good news is the grace of God. The world doesn't have good news to offer. Only Christianity has good news. Only the Bible has good news. Only Jesus has the good news for us. And that's what we are to preach. That's what we're supposed to focus on. And Paul was totally focused on that. So the gospel is good news, and you tell people the good news, but you also have to tell them the bad news so they can understand the good news. That's just the way it is. And that's why Paul went, wherever he went, he told people, their diagnosis. Here's your diagnosis. You're a human being. You were made in the image of a God. God is real. There is one God. He is the creator. He's revealed himself throughout history. And now he's revealed himself in scriptures and through the apostles. He is the creator. He's the only creator. Every human being is accountable to this creator, whether you believe in him or not or have another religion or not. He is the one and only creator. And as a result, he's the one and only judge. And the first people, Adam and Eve, who were real people historically, according to the Bible, disobeyed this creator and were cursed and separated from their Creator as a result of sin. And every human being comes from the loins of Adam and Eve, literally. And that sin that was in Adam and Eve as a result, and the curse with it, has been passed on to every human being since then. So that all throughout history, every human being who has been born into this world was born a sinner. An innate, inherent sinner, separated from God at the time of birth. Enemies of God condemned, children of wrath. That is bad news. That is bad news. Deserving of wrath and wrath only. Deserving of an eternal hell because God is holy and just. This is the clear teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. This is all bad news, but it is true news. It's the accurate diagnosis. Sinners don't like to hear this, but we can't compromise and shy away from that. But we make the real bad news as clear as can be, as stark as can be. You help people own it. Yes, I, I understand. I, I am sinful and wicked and evil. So most, many times people won't accept that message when you're talking to them if they're not saved. Many times if you're interacting with an unbeliever and you try to explain the sin concept, many times it's very natural for them to say, well, I'm not a bad person. I haven't killed anybody lately. It's usually what you get. Or they'll point to somebody they know that's worse than them, which is probably true. So that's their... Standard of morality. I'll just find somebody dirtier and meaner than me and make themselves look good. So they have a false standard by which they judge themselves. So they're not owning that sin. But every once in a while you'd be talking to somebody who's not safe uh, and you tell them about sin and here's what the Bible says. 
and we are all evil, and you are evil, and you are And then, you know, that resonates with their conscience, and they just can't deny it. And they get convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they say, yeah, you're right. And they feel guilt. It just happened to me like a month ago, talking to an unbeliever. Well, maybe, I don't know where they were spiritually, but just started talking about, told them I was a pastor, and just started talking about uh, the basics of the gospel, good news. But I had to talk about sin. And when I started talking about sin, that everybody was born a sinner, uh, that person was a sinner, I was a sinner, we were born that way, we're separated from God, we deserve wrath, we deserve God's judgment. And they were just, yeah, and it was resonating with him. And the conscience that God gave, that's good. Because when they understand that, then you can give them the good news. Here is the solution. Here is what can heal you, and the only thing that can heal you, this bad news that damns souls for all eternity. It is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the good news? The gospel. It is the grace of God. Look at the end of verse 24. The grace of God. Just by way of reminder, what is grace in the New Testament? It is the goodness of God and the blessing of God that he bestows on undeserving, evil, wicked people. So he he blesses us even though we don't deserve it. He rains blessings upon us even though we can't earn it. And the highest form of that blessing is the forgiveness of sin because sin is what damns our souls to eternity. And so that is the distinctive of the Christian message. Uh, The good news is we are separated from God from our sin, but God took the initiative by sending Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to to extend grace to sinners that they might be saved. And that grace is forgiveness of sin, And it's grace because it's not deserved. And it's grace because it can't be earned. It can't be purchased. You can't uh, try to do a bunch of good works and earn the favor of God and earn the forgiveness of God. And that is what every false religion and worldview teaches, that you can do things to appease God. You can do things to earn acceptance from the Creator. And that's the antithesis of Christianity, the grace of God. We can't do anything, number one, to get saved in the first place. And get this, according to the book of Galatians, we can't do anything to earn God's favor after we are saved. In other words, sanctification is not earned by good works either. A lot of Christians are confused by that. Especially those who tend to be on the legalistic side of things. If I do this and do this and do this and do this and do this and... Uh, God will be happy. He'll like me more. I'll have more forgiveness of sin. I'll become holier. I'll be more like Jesus and so on and so forth. And he will be pleased. And you're, you're earning sanctification. And Paul says in Galatians, no, ah, you started uh, and got saved by the grace of God. You think you're going to continue on apart from the grace of God? No. So the New Testament is very clear about that. It is all the grace of God. We are justified by the grace of God. Get this, we are sanctified by the grace of God. You can't earn it. Well, I thought we were supposed to be called to be obedient. Yes. I thought we were called to do good works. Yes. But nowhere does it say that your good works are going to earn your holiness in this life. So if you are one of those Christians who has been thinking, or there's a little bit of thinking there, that by virtue of me doing good deeds and holiness, I'm going to earn the forgiveness of God or the favor of God, or the ongoing holiness of God, that is categorically unbiblical. That is not grace. That is legalism. We're called in Philippians to work out our salvation, right? It says there right there. There it is. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, we are. 
And then Paul tells us how we're even able to work out our salvation is because God is working in you as a Christian already. He saved you by grace. He graciously gave you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. He graciously watches over and provides for you every day. It is all of grace. And it is the Spirit of God working through you and the Scriptures that allows you to work out your salvation. So it is all His doing. All His grace. So when you actually do do something that is a blessing, when you actually do do a good work that's legitimate and someone else is blessed, it wasn't a good works that originated in you or me. They're actually good works that God produced in us through the Holy Spirit. So in other words, He gets all the glory, He gets all the credit for the actual good works that we do. Because it is all of grace. From beginning to end, the Christian life is all of God's doing and not ours so that He gets all the glory. Because He deserves it, we don't. It's actually very liberating. Very liberating because we are fallen, we are compromised, we are so weak. Jesus said that Himself. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Amen. Pathetically weak. God, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your leading. Thank you that you promised to do that for me as one of your children, as a a true born-again Christian. God almost guarantees in the Scriptures that if you are truly regenerate and truly born again, he he guarantees he's going to produce good works through you. Not against your will, but he will. He will empower you and enable you to live a life that's honoring to Him. So that is the gospel of the grace of God. That is the message we preach. We can't deviate from that. We can't compromise it. We can't water it down with false messages, legalism, religion, humanism, and everything else that tends to trickle in. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. So also to the message. What is the message we preach? It's a a message of the gospel and good news. It is a message of the grace of God from beginning to end, justification and sanctification unto glorification. And also what we preach is the kingdom of God. That is part of the gospel message. The kingdom of God. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He came preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God. So they, they are the same thing. Some people don't understand that. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is simply the sphere or the umbrella under which you live where Jesus reigns as king. And in this life, it's spiritual. He is not here on the earth physically, but you have a relationship that is real with him. You live in his kingdom, in his sphere. He is the one that you obey. Although he reigns literally in heaven. And someday Jesus will come to earth and reign literally and physically, politically, socially, on the earth. And that also is an element of the kingdom of God. But the only way you can get into the kingdom of God, whether it's now, spiritually, or in the future, literally or in eternity forever there's only one entry point and it is through jesus christ only savior crucified risen for sinners that is the message we preach says paul and he tells them to continue preaching that message for you may not see my face anymore verse 26 therefore i testify to you this day that i am innocent of the blood of all men for i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of god this is amazing that he could say this It's very bold it's not arrogant but it's true for three years, Paul, it says that Paul's message went out everywhere in Asia. Everywhere. So he could leave satisfied, knowing I fully discharged my mission. Everybody in Asia virtually heard the gospel. He's actually kind of alluding to the book of Ezekiel 
in the words of the prophet, where the prophet, a faithful prophet, if a, a faithful, if a prophet failed to issue the message or discharge the ministry to certain people that God's called them to do, if he failed to do it, if he didn't do it completely or fully, then he was unfaithful. And then God said that that prophet had blood on his hands because everybody didn't hear the message that I wanted you to give the message to. You only gave the message to some. This would be true of Jonah. If Jonah refused to go to Nineveh, he would have had blood on his hands. That's what Ezekiel talks about. I, am, I don't have blood on my hands. And that's what Paul's saying. I don't have blood on my hands. I, I gave the gospel to everybody. Not everybody believed. Many rejected. But at least before God, I did what I was supposed to do. And you elders, you need to do the same thing. So that's his charge. In verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Uh, this terminology in verse 27 implies that Paul didn't shrink away. He didn't step back. He didn't avoid things that were uncomfortable to say. In other words, he was not a coward when it came to preaching to people. In other words, he was courageous and bold when it came to delivering God's truth to sinners. Because Paul knew a lot of the things that God has to say to sinners, they aren't going to like it. They are going to resist it. They will get angry. They will get defiant. They may react physically, and they did, but that didn't stop Paul. And he's telling his elders, you can't be cowards. You need to be bold. You need to hold the line, stay in the trenches, speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Regardless of the consequences, be a faithful shepherd. And this is a this is a huge challenge to pastors, local pastors. It is very easy to succumb to cowardice in the face of resistance of people, and not just unbelievers. Probably the in my experience of being a pastor and working four or five six pastors over many years, I think one of the greatest challenges or temptations. It's for a, a pastor, especially the preaching pastor, to not succumb to the criticisms, not of the world, but the criticisms of his own congregation. Those, those are hard to deal with. Oh, you hurt my feelings. Oh, did you really say this? Oh, that made my sister-in-law mad, and she was visiting a church that day. How dare you? Am I making these up? No. These are real-life stories of pastors I've heard of and some that have been said to me. But anyway, and I know just from experience and knowing a lot of pastors, that, that's the greatest challenge. And with the grace of God, hopefully they rise to the challenge and keep faithful preaching. As a matter of fact, when we started the church, actually when God started Grace Bible Fellowship 11 years ago, uh, as we were getting started before we started, the elders-to-be, we all read one of Mark Dever's books to kind of lay a foundation. Short book on the church. And I'll never forget. He just, it was real simple. Just be faithful. Preach the word. Don't deviate from it. Don't compromise. Yes, you'll get criticized. That's what's expected. That's by design. Don't change the message. And then he said two things after that. You won't just be criticized. You know, the people who criticize over and over again, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll leave the church anyway. They'll just leave on their own. Just let them go. They didn't want to hear the word of God. They weren't hungry for truth. And that's what First John says. They were not of us, even though they were among us. They left to show that we were, they were not of us anyway. And he says, but the good news is what you preach, yeah, it repels some people, but it's also going to attract some people. It's going to attract people who hunger 
truth, who hunger and thirst after righteousness and what God has to say in the Bible. Keep doing that because that's your calling. Feed the sheep. Feed my sheep. That's who you're supposed to be concentrating on. Don't get distracted focusing on those over there in the periphery and they're mad and they're throwing rocks at the window as they leave. Who cares? Feed the sheep. I will never forget that 11 years ago. Great counsel. And that's what pastors and elders need to be focused on. Feed the sheep. As a matter of fact, Paul says that in this passage. In the next section we're going to right now. So after being uh, following the model of Paul and the message that Paul got from Jesus Christ that never changes, the message of the good news, the only thing that can save sinful humanity, now the mandate that they are charged to fulfill, number three. What is the mandate? For these elders, they are to shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. So shepherd is that verb for the noun form pastor. Pastor the flock. Shepherd the flock. Used seven times as a verb in the New Testament, depending upon your English translation. Four times it's translated as feed. 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 Three times translated as rule. Feed and rule. Feed and lead. What's a pastor supposed to do? What's an elder supposed to do? Feed and lead. That's it. Feed and lead. That's what we do. And you could put everything else under those two categories. Whether it's praying, protecting, overseeing, guiding, training, arbitrating conflict, those all fall under those two categories. Feed and lead. And that's what shepherd to shepherd means. That's in verse 28. So let's go ahead and look at the mandate that shepherds are to fulfill. Well, first of all, elders, pastors are supposed to be on guard. Be on guard, verse 28. That is a command. It's not an option. Wake up. Be awake. Stay awake. In other words, pastors, elders, you need to be diligent. You need to be diligent. You need to be awake. You need to be involved. You need to be hands-on. It's not just an office or position to be fulfilled as you sit back passively so that you can put it on your resume or whatever because you're respectable because you're just on another board. It implies involvement that is regular routine at a very intimate, aggressive level. Be on guard. Diligent. So elders need to be diligent. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And it goes in that order. He says the same thing to Timothy. Watch out for yourself and your doctrine in that order. So that's what pastors need to do. Pastors can burn out. Pastors can fall into sin. Pastors can compromise. Pastors can deviate. Pastors can get cold and hard. And we got 2,000 years of history to show that. If you live long enough, you see it enough times occurring in your own life of people you knew. Maybe even seasons of life where you struggled with those things. There's a solution. Paul keeps telling men of God in the church, man, you have got to be diligent and you've got to start with yourself. If you want to take care of the congregation, take care of yourself. For What does he mean there? Your own spiritual life. Elders of GBF, Pastor Cliff, take care of yourself. Are you on your knees talking to God? Are you praying regularly? Are you asking Him to keep your heart tender and teachable and humble? Are you in His Word daily? Are you focused and pursuing after Him and His will, not your own? Those are just some of the things. Guard yourself. Guard your thinking. What are you intaking? What are you, who are you listening to? Protect your mind. 
What kind of accountability do you have in your life? If you're married, accountability number one. That's your wife, your spouse. Another man of God. So that's how you protect yourself, guard yourself. Then, Lord willing, you'll be suitable to guard the flock, guard the sheep, guard the little sheep. That's what it is. The ones who need feeding and leading. The ones that need your protection and prayer. Guard the flock. So, elders need to be diligent. Also, verse 28, not only do elders need to be diligent, they also need to be subservient. Being an elder is a leadership position. It is. You know, some people aspire naturally for leadership because it feeds their pride. That's natural for sinners. But the Bible says just the opposite. Paul, you're a leader, but you're not up here. Uh, you're actually down here. Subservient. Elders are subservient. They should be. Remember, among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. You didn't put yourself in that position by virtue of all your qualifications and your amazing giftedness and your popularity and your wealth and influence and popular demand. If you're truly an elder in the church, God's Holy Spirit rose you up and put you there because it is His church, not your church, elder pastor. Pastor Cliff, can I go to your church? Well, I don't have one. But Jesus has one, it's, and I'd love you to come. And I, I am privileged to be a, a subservient servant of his precious church. Great reminder. So elders need to be uh, vigilant, but they also need to be subservient. Understanding their proper role in the church. God's Spirit puts you there. Uh, he's made you overseers to oversee, to be stewards on His behalf. You're accountable to Him. To shepherd, to pastor, that's what you are to do. To feed the sheep, tend the sheep, care for the sheep. The church of God, it's His church, Jesus' church. He is the head which He purchased with His own blood. That's talking about Jesus. His blood refers to His death. His precious blood, His priceless blood. It's the most valuable entity in existence, the precious church of Christ. So not only do elders need to be vigilant and subservient, they also need to be, verse 29 and following, uh, they also need to be uh, discerning. 29 says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. So we got a great church going on here at Ephesus. We got all the ministries up and going. We got a plurality of elders. We got a couple of nurseries. We've got three Sunday school classes. We've got potlucks. We've got, and on and on. Man, st stuff was going well at the church at Ephesus. But it's not always going to be a honeymoon. It's not always going to be uh, rosy. So they needed to hear this warning. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come into my, I can say the same thing. Say that, um, uh, God called me to do something else. Maybe to paint out houses in uh, Michigan. And it's like, so and then I meet with my elders. I, I'd say the very same thing. I know, you know, GBF, 11 years, we're doing well. We got all the ministries, good stuff. And I could say this, but there's a problem. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among GBF, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves, says the New American Standard. Grievous wolves, I think says the King James. The literal Greek word, burdensome wolves. What's a burdensome wolf? That's a false teacher 
Someone with false religion, compromised religion. It looks Christian, talks Christian. They quote from the Bible, but it is burdensome. That's what the Pharisees were called, burdensome. In other words, they compromise the free grace of God and they add works to it and false views. So it becomes, so religion literally becomes a burden to the people. It is, Christianity is a drudgery. It's not joyful. And that's what false teachers do. And he's warning. False teachers are going to come. You can guarantee it. There's no way to prevent it from happening. It is a reality because Satan is real. He's a real entity. He raises up. He empowers false teachers to trickle in and invade the church. And they come from the outside. In other words, they weren't born and raised in your church. They come from outside. They look like they're Christian. Oh, he talks nice. Oh, he quotes the Bible. Oh, he seems to know the Bible well. She seems to know the Bible well. Oh, let's have her come in. Let's have her join the Bible study. Oh, let's have him lead a Sunday school class. They look like a sheep. Yeah, they look like a sheep, but underneath they're ravenous, vicious, deceptive pawns of Satan and wolves. They are very, 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 very hard to detect at the outset because they really, 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 really look like wheat when they are weeds. They're so cute and little and they look like lambs and they are goats. It's going to happen. I know that after uh, my departure, savage wolves, false teachers are going to enter into the church of Ephesus. And you can just read the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the book of Ephesians, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the church of Ephesus, 30 years later, and savage wolves tried to get into the church at Ephesus. You know what? These elders, they held their own for 30 years. They were very strong with doctrine. And anytime there's false doctrine, uh, according to John in Revelation, says, you know what? You did good exposing false doctrine. But you weren't the most loving of people. You came, uh, you became uh, spiritually proud over the decades, and you kind of lost your first love of Jesus. You, know, you got good doctrine. You ought to be commended for that. So they did. There were other churches in Asia Minor that did not uh, keep false doctrine out. They they let it come in to destroy the church. So GBF needs to do the same thing. Be on guard. You've been around eleven years. You have got to know that savage wolves are going to come in from the outside, trying to get into our people, trying to teach false things very subtly. Most people won't even be able to discern what they're actually teaching is off-kilter just a bit. That's why elders have to be so discerning to spot these things. So you're going to get attacked from the outside, and they're, they're going after the sheep. Verse 30. And from among, here's what's worse. And from among your own selves, men will arise within the church. You're going to get attacked from without and within. So GBF, you're going to have people rising up in your church from the inside. And you thought these people were good people, sincere people, biblical people. And lo and behold, time reveals they were poisonous, dangerous, serving a different master, wolves. And he says, you've got to guard against this. Every church needs to guard against these two attacks from outside and from inside. And one of the things they're characterized by, verse 34, they're not living for Jesus. What are they doing? To draw away the disciples after themselves. That's what they do. That's what a false teacher does. That's what a factious person does. That's what a heretic does. The word heresy means to create divisions. Create division, uh, planting seeds of doubt through gossip so that you will question the leadership of your church, so that you will question your pastor and question the elders. Oh, so subtly. Pointing out their... Smallest of idiosyncrasies and faults. Oh, yes, yeah, that, that's true. 
Now, well, that's true. I never have been invited to one of the elders' houses for dinner. Wow, thank you for pointing that out. And come to think of it, I've never invited an elder over my house for dinner either. But anyway, that has nothing to do with it. And then they create this. So that's where it starts. That's what Satan did with Eve. And that's how Satan works. I've seen it. I have seen it for 11 years at GBF. I've seen it for 20 plus years serving in different churches. Behind the scenes. It's not blatant and overt when it starts. Just little question here. Taking a, it's like playing Jenga. Oh, I'll take this block away here. Oh, I'll take this little one away here. For, before long, you have literally poisoned the mind of one of your members against your leadership of your church, those who watch over your soul. Paul warned us about it right here. Because what's their motivation? These divisive people who look Christian, talk Christian, they are trying to draw away disciples after themselves. See? They want a following. Well, let's, let's go start our own Bible study. Let's, let's move away from here. We'll go start our own church. Let's move away from here and let's go to my church. That's the mark of these divisive kind of people. They draw people away after, disciples after themselves. Follow, they say, follow me. When the true message is Jesus is the only one who can legitimately say, follow me. I don't want people following me. Please do not follow McManus. You will be gravely, highly disappointed. Follow Jesus. I want to, I don't want to go like this to people. I want to go that way to the cross, to the blood, to the Savior. Follow Him, not me. Thank you, Paul, for this warning, verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. You gotta, you gotta know it. Don't be idealistic and have your head in the sand. This is coming. This is, not only is it coming, if you've been around for any amount of time, it's already happening. It's already happening and it has already happened. What are you doing about it? This is where you gotta be courageous. Make the hard decisions. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Do what I did. Give your whole life to it. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God. Okay, so verse 32. In terms of fulfilling the mandate, elders need to be dependent. Verse 32. This is the highest call. You know, I think it's harder to pastor a church, to be an elder of a church, than being a CEO of one of the largest businesses. I just, that's my personal opinion. Because of what is at stake and the spiritual nature of it. If you're the CEO of a big company or Amazon, whatever, pick any company. You don't necessarily have your number one avowed enemy as Satan himself. As a matter of fact, he might be on your team. But if you're at a true church, there's your your main enemy right there. He is always there. He will never leave. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He is continually, he is persisting all the time after you. And that's why Paul says, you know what? In light of this spiritual reality that Satan is going to be after you and false teachers are going to be incessant from without and within, you need supernatural help. So I commend you. I am now dedicating you to God. You cannot do it apart from God, apart from His grace. You can't do it on your own. Even though you're banded together and there's 32 elders here together, you don't have the strength to pull this off. You need supernatural strength, and it only comes through God, and I'm commending you, I am committing you to the Lord. Not only that, 
to God specifically, but also practically to the word of his grace, to the scriptures, to divine truth. You have got to be dependent upon God daily in your relationship with him, but also continually on his word, in his word, in the Bible, in scripture, especially when it's time to make hard decisions. Elders have to make hard decisions all the time. Wow, how do I decide on this? Well, I first I look to scripture. Well, I'm not sure about this. Uh, well, that's what the Bible says. But yeah, but there might be a reaction. It might not work. No, that's what the Bible says. So it takes faith. Supernatural faith. God, I, I don't understand. I don't know if this is going to work. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do what the Bible says. That's what he means when I am commending you to God and to the word of his grace so you can fulfill your job, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God equips elders, leaders, pastors, overseers in the church sufficiently. They have everything they need to do their job. Totally sufficient. That is awesome. Verse 33, he goes on uh, with his personal example. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. He makes a transition. Not only do elders need to be dependent, they also need to be uh, diligent and work hard. So that's what he's saying here. Work hard. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands, Paul says, Paul was a hard worker. He wasn't a wimp, sissy, afraid of hard work, get dirt under his fingernails, get scraped and scratched. He was not a white-collar worker. Roll up his sleeves. Worked long hours. Worked two jobs. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. So he comes in. There's no church to accept money from because the church doesn't exist when he got to Ephesus. So he worked hard, made his own money, and then planted a church and was never dependent upon that church for his existence. Verse 35, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Have a heart for the people. See, this is this is having a shepherd's heart. Not just liking those who like you, compliment you, the popular ones, the ones that are doing okay. You need to be a faithful shepherd to those who aren't doing so okay. The the hurting sheep. And here specifically, he emphasizes the weak. And not just talking physically weak. Weak in temperament, weak in spirit, weak psychologically, weak in terms of trying to face the temptations of life, weak in terms of their habits the things they're trying to overcome, the weak. So a shepherd needs to give priority to helping the weak, which means the shepherd's got to know his people. He's got to know where they are in life. Why, why are they weak? Where are they weak? How can I help? It's got to be in tune. Help the weak. Be giving. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said is more blessed to give than receive. You will not see that quote from Jesus in verse 35 anywhere in the four Gospels. That isn't where Paul got it. He didn't get it from the four Gospels. John, John's gospel wasn't even written yet when Paul said this. Where did it come from? Well, Jesus said it, definitely. And it was probably preserved in oral tradition from the saints. Uh, many people who walked and talked with Jesus were still alive, interacted with Paul, told him, you know what, the Lord Jesus said this. And it was such a pr- blessed proverb. It is more blessed to give than receive. That The Spirit of God made sure that Paul never forgot that. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That is the heart of a true Christian and a shepherd. Being in ministry is all about really serving and giving. If you want to be a pastor, you're called to be giving to others all the time and serving. At least that's what the model is here. That's the vocation. It's not about making a buck or elevating yourself to prominence. It's about serving. Verse 36, 
they finished their elders' meeting. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, all of his elders. Blessed time of prayer together. And they began to weep aloud. What tremendous affection. They loved Paul. Brothers in the Lord. They wept and they wept aloud. They embraced Paul, repeatedly kissed him. Just the gamut of emotions. Verse 38, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more. And it could very well be that they didn't. Although there are indications that he may have passed through again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Amazing. So what a standard. So the bar is set here. The bar is set here by the Apostle Paul and the Spirit of God of the responsibility of pastors, elders, overseers, and bishops in the local church. And it's an impossible standard from a human point of view. But it can actually be fulfilled by the grace of God through the empowering of His Holy Spirit in the lives of men who truly love Jesus and understand their calling and are qualified and are supported by their people and especially the prayers of the saints and their own life that is committed to prayer. So that's a good practical reminder. When's the last, if you're a member of GBF, all 186, 7, 9 of you, when's the last time you prayed for your elders? Don't tell me, don't feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but man, they need your prayers. Your six elders, they need your prayers. The deacons, they need your prayers. Anybody that's a leader at GBF, they need your prayers. Asking God be gracious to sustain them in the calling in which he's entrusted to them, all for his glory. With that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for our time together. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day, uh, another opportunity to gather with the saints on a Sunday. Historically, that wonderful day when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead and we get to celebrate that in a vivid way every single Sunday to refresh us, to renew us, to lay the burdens of the last week down. We come together for fellowship, for worship, for singing to you, for hearing from your word, learning together. What a blessing. God, uh, we thank you for Paul's message that you have preserved it. You've allowed us to see it and be exposed to it, and I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would imprint it upon our mind that we wouldn't quickly forget it and that we would continue to seek you in trying to be a biblical church, one that pleases you and honors your word. And we pray that you have all the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 Six three zero 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 nine.